you please join me in a word of prayer? Well, good morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. I thank you especially for the way that it challenges us. I pray that you would help me as I preach and for each one of us to long for more of you. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back in church with you after three Sundays away for our trip to Israel. And jumping back into James this morning, I love the practicality of James and how straight he shoots. Now, as an introduction this morning, I want to talk to you about a very important topic, and that's the topic of zombies. (laughs) I've noted how many TV shows and movies and novels are about zombies, and I have to admit, I've never watched any of them, but I did look up the show The Walking Dead and realized it ran for 11 complete seasons and just finished in 2021, 11 seasons of a show about zombies. It's, uh, it's interesting, and I think the reason for this obsession with zombies is because they are so unnatural. I had to look it up a little bit. It comes out of like Haitian voodoo, the idea that the undead, a body that's physically dead by some kind of magic force, is caused to walk and act like it's alive even though you can see there's no soul in it. That makes it super creepy. Because frankly, you and I look at bodies all the time, they just happen to have souls in them, so they're persons. But the minute you see a body without the spirit in it, it's really unsettling. Likewise, to see a spirit without a body is unsettling, a ghost. And to have a body that doesn't have a spirit in it, but that is moving, is like twice as freaky. And the reason I bring up zombies this morning is because they are so unnatural. And James, in our passage, says in verse 26, he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. If a person claims to be a Christian, but has no evidence of that faith, it's like a zombie. It's like a body that has no soul in it. And that's a graphic image, and it should be. It should be, because it's just not natural. Faith does stuff. That's my premise this morning. Faith does stuff. And we're in James chapter to the second half of it, it's page 1012 in a pew Bible, and I want to talk about what are these works, this stuff, faith apart from works is dead, what is the works, what is James talking about? Well, I did a little survey of the first part of James up to this point, and I made a list of things that could be considered the outworking, the deeds that accompany belief. So here's a list. One, it's a work of faith to remain steadfast when you're under a trial. When you're under some testing or trial or difficult circumstance, to remain steadfast is an outward outworking of your belief. Praying for wisdom is another one. If you realize you lack wisdom, it is a deed then to turn to God and say, oh God, who is the wise one, give me wisdom for this situation. That is a, a work, if you will. That is, a, that is something that faith does. Faith does that. Another thing would be resisting temptation when it comes or resisting anger, being slow to anger, feeling the anger bubbling up and then tempering it back, asking for God to help you, that is a work, according to James. Another would be obeying God's word, simply reading the word, knowing what he says, and then choosing to live according to that. Another work would be caring for the vulnerable. And James mentions the poor, he mentions widows, he mentions orphans. To care for those that are vulnerable is an outworking of your faith. It is the stuff that faith does. Another one is practicing impartiality. Last week, Curtis preached on that. 
It's to treat people according to the golden rule. Treat them the way you would like to be treated, even if they're different than you in some way. It's love others as you love yourself. Applying that to all people. That is an outworking of faith. You do that because of faith, according to James. And another one is keeping yourself unstained from the world. Being in that moment where the world and its values, which are at odds with the kingdom of God, are pressing in on you, and you say, "Mm, no, I'm not going to go to that thing with you. I'm going to choose not to watch that movie. I'm going to choose not to be part of that conversation. I don't want to do that stuff because I realize what it will do to my faith. That is a work that accompanies faith, actually. So as we entered into worship this morning, Curtis invited you to do a little self-inventory. And I want to say, if you're a Christian, how did your faith in Jesus manifest itself over the last seven days? Take a little self-audit. Maybe even later, pull out your journal and write a li- like make a list with bullet points. Things that actually you did because you believe in Jesus. I'd encourage you to do that. It's helpful. It's, it's actually a little bit unnerving, too, and it might even be highly convicting how little we do that we could have done. But I want to encourage you to do it because I think that's what James is pointing us to do. What stuff did you do with your faith or because of your faith? Now, if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't self-identify as a Christian, if you are sort of exploring the things of faith, do the inventory as well. It's interesting you might have done a lot of these things, actually. And I was reading in, in Paul's letter to the Romans about people who are outside of the community of faith. It says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So a person who is not yet fully convi- con- committed to the Lord can do things because your conscience is placed there by God. And faith can actually be happening in your life and you haven't named it yet, but you've started to live according to the kingdom of God. I want to say press in further and give your life entirely to God. Become a Christian. It's happening. The Lord is at work in your life. Recognize it, own it, and step into it more fully. James 2.14 says, um, something that's interesting. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, if you're a good evangelical, if you're someone who's read the works of the Reformation, you know the teaching of Luther and Calvin and the others, immediately your flags all go up. Wait a minute. This is looking like works righteousness here. Can Can that faith save him? It sounds like you're earning something. Your works are saving you. Don't misunderstand what James is saying. He's saying it's not faith and works. It's faith that works because that's what faith actually is. They, they have to go together. They can't be pulled apart. It's as unnatural as a zombie. It does not exist in nature. If there is faith, there will be works. And that's the kind of faith that saves. Jesus is the one who does the works for us, but if we really believe in him, we will naturally then have works in our life. That's just what happens. Intellectual assent to doctrines is not enough, as important as it is. You might know all the tenets of the faith. You might have the catechism memorized. You might be able to quote tons of scripture verses. Guess what? According to James, so do the demons. You say that God is one, there is one God, well done, that's true. And so do the demons, he says, and they shudder, they tremble, but they don't submit. They don't serve, 
They don't trust in God. They don't have faith in him in the sense of putting their weight on him. They're at odds with him. They hate him, but they know he's true. That's why they tremble. They know a day is coming when he's going to come and smite them entirely. But that's intellectual assent. It's understanding of what is true, but not actually living according to it. He's saying that's, that's not real faith. That's just intellectual assent. Talk is cheap, in other words. I don't know if you've ever read John Bunyan's allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's very interesting to read it. You know, every person in there has a name that lines up with their character. So the protagonist is a na- man named Christian. He has a man, a friend named Faithful, and they're on a journey on a path to the celestial city. It's, um, it's, all, it's an allegory of the life of faith, and it has people, characters in it that are people we would run into in this life. One that I always think about is a man named Talkative. It seems I run into Talkative all the time. There, is, there are Talkatives everywhere. Talkative is very conversant in the things of religion, even the Christian religion. And he totally impresses faithful with all of his discourse as they're walking together. But Christian, hanging off by himself, is not impressed. And he's shaking his head. And finally, faithful goes over to him and says, wow, this guy talkative is so impressive. He's so interesting to talk to. And Christian says, don't believe it. I know him personally back from home where we came from. He was a terrible person. He hated his family. He was mean to his wife. He hung out with the miscreants in town. He did all sorts of bad stuff. He can talk a big game, but he doesn't actually live it. And Faithful is like, I was deceived by him. I, I, I wouldn't have even known that. What should I do? And he says, here's what to do. Go and ask him what happens when faith comes into a person's heart. And specifically, when the gospel takes root in a person's heart, how does it set up in his heart, in his home, and in his habits? And so Christian goes, or faithful goes over to talkative and says, let's talk about what happens when the gospel comes to somebody. How does it affect his heart, his home, and his habits? And of course, he's good to answer this. He goes, yes, that's great. Let's have that conversation and begins to wax eloquently about it. And he says, well, the first thing that happens in his heart is a cry out against sin. And the second thing, and as he's about to say the second thing, he's interrupted and faithful says, wait, 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 let's stay with that one for a minute. His heart cries out against sin, but doesn't the wife of Potiphar cry out against Joseph and accuse him of approaching her for adultery, but really in her heart she wanted to commit it with him? So you can cry out against sin and not mean it at all. I think what it means, and then Faithful starts to actually preach to talkative about the the impact of the gospel. He says what I think it actually means is to have an an abhorrence of sin, to hate the sin that is in your life and resent it. It's an inner condition where you start to really dislike those inclinations towards sin. He says, okay, but let's keep going. What's the second thing? And he says, talkative says, he says, well, it's, the second thing is having a great knowledge of the gospel mysteries. And And then Faithful says, well, no, actually, it's a little bit more than that. It's not about knowledge of these gospel mysteries. It's having a personal knowledge of the living God and desiring to walk with him and obey him. And then at this point, Talkative's like, I see you're trying to trip me up, right? Because he's he's saying, your faith is hollow. You're all talk, and there's no deeds to your life. He says, but go on, what else? And he said, I'm not going to say another thing because you're trying to trip me up. And then Faithful says, I want to say one more thing. Let me say one more thing about what I think it looks like when faith sets up in a person's life. This is what I think. 
And he says, that hatred of sin is matched with the knowledge that there is a Savior who loves you enough to die on the cross for your sins, and that he has come into your life, you've repented of your sins, you're walking with him, and then God creates a hunger and a thirst for more of him. You start to desire him above everything. And he quotes Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, God. When can I come to you in the weary land, in the dry, barren land? When can I come? That's what it looks like. And then finally, talkative is like, I don't like this company anymore. And he, and they, he abandons them. And they're both happy about it. But they all, he also did preach the truth to him. So now it's back on talkative to figure out what he wants to do with it. Talk is so cheap. But faith, real faith, does stuff. It transforms both the inside of the person and then their outward behavior. Their heart, then their, what happens in their home life, and then their habits, all of that starts to come into alignment with it. James in here gives the example of a person that is, has inadequate clothing in the winter and doesn't have enough food. He says, if your faith is all talk and doesn't have any deeds to match it, it's as good as saying to that person, be warm, go in peace, and be well-fed, but not giving them clothing or giving them any food. It's totally empty. It does nothing. It means nothing. He uses the example of Rahab the prostitute in Jericho. When the spies of Joshua come across the Jordan to spy out the land, they are found out by the city leaders in Jericho. And they hide. They go into Rahab the prostitute's um, house, and then they come, the, the town comes looking for these spies. And she has come to believe that their God is the God, and she's trusting in, in the Lord. And so she lies to the city elders, she hides the spies in her house, and then lets them down through the window, because her house was in the wall of the city, and tells them to hide in the hills for three days, and when the, the search team that I told to follow you comes back, then you can get across the river and get home. It would have been a very different story if she said, guys, I believe in your God, good luck out there, and shut her door. What good is that? It would not help them in any way. So faith does stuff. Faith moves. It has actions. That's how we know it's faith. Now, James and Paul, the Apostle James and the Apostle Paul, I think, counterbalance each other very well in the Bible. You can see why Martin Luther, the Reformer, wanted to rip James out of his Bible, because they actually say the exact opposite thing. It's interesting, really. Um, verse 24 in our passage, James writes, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, my Bible, if I flip back over and I go to uh, Romans 2, verse 24, let me see if it's verse 20, no, it's not 24, it's 3, verse 24. He says, we hold that one is justified by faith, by faith, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, Paul writes, and that's in verse 20, verse 20. Well, which is it? Is he justified by works or is he justified by, by, by faith? Well, what is the Bible? Is it inconsistent? Can we not trust it? What are they talking about here? And then interestingly enough, they both appeal to Abraham. Paul says to the Jews, look at Abraham. He was credited with righteousness by God for trusting God before he received the work of circumcision. And then James appeals to Abraham as well and says, he offered up his son Isaac as a work, showing that he actually had faith. And that's why he was justified. Well, you can also say to Paul, 
God told Abraham to leave his hometown and go to this promised land that he didn't know what it was like, and he went. He acted right away because he believed. He had faith working within there. Paul was handling a specific situation with religious Jews that were expecting people to be circumcised, thinking it only the outward and physical was enough to save, that it could somehow be divorced from an inward and spiritual reality. And James was dealing with Christians that were saying the right stuff, but their life was lacking any kind of fruit. And he was saying, if it's real faith, it's got to have fruit. And you see both happening, of course, in Abraham's life. He did believe God, who was his savior, and God did save him and did credit him with righteousness. And there was stuff happening at the same time that there was faith. It was all present. And so it's fitting that, quote, faith was active along with his works. That's what James says of Abraham. Faith was active along with his works. Both were happening. These guys are actually in agreement, but Paul is trying to make the strong point that your works can't save you. Your faith in Jesus saves you, but if it is saving faith, it will then bring forth works. Now, he was so adamant and so clear on this anti-works righteousness teaching and preaching that the people naturally reacted and said, well, what are we doing? Are we doing away with the law? Should we then sin more so that grace will abound more? Romans 4 and Romans 6 deal with this. Are you saying, go, go for it, sin big, because God's grace will be even bigger? And Paul says, no, obviously that is wrong because you misunderstand what faith is. And he should have said, just read what James wrote, and it will clarify this up for you. And James should have said, now, hey, you guys that think you're earning something, go back and read what Paul wrote. You can't save yourself by your efforts. We have a cross. We have a Lord who died on the cross to pay for your sins. That is how you are saved. And you trust in him and believe in him, and then it starts to transform you. Faith does stuff. It transforms your inside and your outside. If none of that is there, you've got to ask yourself, do I actually have faith or do I just have intellectual assent to doctrines and Christianity as a religion, not as a relationship, as a way of life? Here's a really hard question. Have you ever had a coworker say to you, I didn't know you were a Christian? That should be a red flag. How is it possible to work alongside someone or be someone's you know, friend or companion in something and they have no idea that you're a Christian. You look so much like the rest of the secular world that they don't recognize that you're different. That should be an immediate red flag that causes you to fall on your knees and go, God, save me, help me. Help me understand the gospel because obviously it has not taken root in my life. Now, J.I. Packer, the great, late, great Anglican, um, wrote a number of books, but one that sold over a million copies and was very well known was called Knowing God. And it wasn't just about knowing facts about God, but it was having a personal, real, relational knowledge of God. And in his very first chapter, he comes out and he says, there are some marks in a person's life when they know God. He identifies four. He says, they have great energy for God. It's not a burden to get up on Sunday mornings and come into God's house to worship him. I can tell you after missing three Sundays here, I had an eagerness. I woke up extra early before my alarm. I, was, I had energy for coming here and being in God's house with you. People who know God have energy for him. They want to serve him. They want to do stuff. Another thing that Packer identified is they have great thoughts of God. They don't think of a little God among all the other gods. They think of a God who is so majestic, he created the ocean and the universe, and he is ordering all the details of history, the details of your life from the number of hairs on your head to the orbits of the planets to everything. 
It's so fascinating having just come back from the Holy Land where we saw, or at least as I was trying to piece together the story of Scripture, we see things going back to Abraham offering Isaac on Mount Moriah and on the hill of the Lord it will be provided. And that's now the Temple Mount where the temple was built, both temples, and it's like 3,500 years of history and God has been consistently doing things in history to uphold his story and to see how he pieces history together and current uh, holds the whole world together. These are great thoughts of God. People that know God see him as big, majestic, transcendent, and grand because he is those things. But they also know him personally. They have great boldness for God. They're not afraid to stand up and say, no, I'm actually a Christian, you know? Take my life if you will. I'll be a martyr, but I'm not gonna renounce my faith because you're threatening me with some violence. And look at our friends at Good Shepherd Church in India and what they're going through. They're in the 10th most dangerous country in the world to be a Christian, and they are unashamed of it. Those people know God. They have boldness for him. And finally, the people that know God have great contentment in him. They're okay if their bucket list doesn't, you know, get filled in this life. They're okay if they never make it to the Holy Land or they never get to do whatever because their contentment is actually in God and they know that ultimately he will fill up everything that is lacking. Their heart is rested in him. These are marks of true knowledge of God. Do you have them in your life? Does that describe you? Now, I want to say to you, if you're feeling convicted by James, because we all should be, I, I mean, I read this and I go, ugh, well, I'm, a, I'm paid, I'm a pastor, so I'm paid to do churchy stuff. Does that count? sort of, you know, it's convicting, right? There's more we could do. There's more we could have done in the last seven days out of our faith. And I want to say to you, if you feel that, go to him and say, God, fill me afresh. We're going to come and take his body and blood into ours. Ask him to fill us with fire and zeal for him and more desire to do those works. Faith is like a muscle. It can atrophy. It can be weak. It can be real faith, but with smaller works. Say, God, strengthen my faith so the works get bigger. Give me these things. You know, Soul in the City starts today, tonight. And we started, we brought Soul in the City here over 10 years ago in 2009, I guess it was, or 10, to help our students learn up, in, and out. Worship God, be a community of people, and then go on mission to serve the world. And for a week, they get that in intense concentration. They learn how to put faith to work. And it's an incredible opportunity. I want to say for all of us, let's engage with that up, in, and out. People who are out serving the Lord, we're living our faith out, living it outside, not just a private contemplative faith, but one that's action-oriented. Every week, we have a mission of the week. That's not to inform you about what the church is doing. That's to let you know this could be a ministry you can jump in and serve with. You could participate with this mission. Go out and do the works God has giving you to do, the mission of the week might be a work for you. So I want to encourage you to think about that. We pray to God, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just say, God, good luck with that. I hope you do it soon. We're invited by him, like Abraham was his friend. We're invited as his cooperative friends to work for that to happen in our midst. God, let your kingdom come, but help me also be a kingdom person so that the already and the not yet start to happen now. So join in. Real faith, real saving faith does stuff. Let your faith show by what it does. And ask God to give you the grace to do even more because he's bigger than we even realize. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a really convicting text, as is 
really all of James. And I pray for your grace to receive it for each one of us. I pray that you'd fill us afresh this morning by both your word and your sacrament, that we might live, live our faith out loud. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.